to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today is the orchestrated attacks on virtually all medical and scientific professionals who challenge the COVID narrative. Also, we're going to take a look in depth at what are the real motives of the World Health Organization treaty that they're trying to get passed around the world that the average person is unaware of, and what would happen if that treaty goes through. That means you will no longer have freedom of choice over your body when it comes to anything perceived to be a pandemic or a medical emergency. They would. Bill Gates would. My guest to share these insights today is a person who is an outstanding scientist. Her name is Dr. Meryl Nass, M-A-S-S, N-A-S-S. She's a medical doctor. I've known Meryl for a long time because when I was writing articles after the first Gulf War and uh, and showing Gulf War syndrome was real. I was working with people. We were treating our medical team at 22, we were treating them at the Tri-State Healing Center. And yet the government says, there were no biological or chemical weapons in the first Gulf episode. Oh yeah, there were. We were lied to by Schwarzkopf, we were lied to by Colin Power. And thousands upon hundreds of thousands of Americans were adversely affected. And we helped get them back to health. Well, one of the people who came forward was Dr. Nass, who is an internal medicine physician in Maine, a biological warfare epidemiologist and expert on anthrax. And she specialized in treating patients with Gulf War syndrome and adverse reactions to anthrax vaccine and vaccine safety in general. In the past, she's testified on six separate occasions before Congress. She's a scholar in her field. She's published in peer-reviewed literature, and she's an expert on, on the on behalf of veterans suffering from the cause of Gulf War syndrome. And she is active in opposing vaccine mandates. She's not opposed to vaccines, but mandating it, yes. And also, she is critiquing many of the false claims and fear-mongering about infectious disease epidemics and the corruption within the medical-industrial-military complex. When you take on those people, you're going to get pushback. They have, they have opportunities to hurt you, and they do. They've gone after her as well. So we'll, we'll talk with her about that as well. But that gives you a very wide form to begin. And by the way, she holds degrees from MIT, and her medical degree is Mississippi School of Medicine. Her website is anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. And now to our guest. Dr. Nass, the form is yours. Thanks for that comprehensive introduction. Um, the United States government became, had been very interested in biological warfare as a weapon of war, beginning at least in 1942-43, and we developed a large, um, uh, sort of an industrial biological warfare research and production facility at Fort Detrick and with satellite offices in different parts of the country during the war. And we didn't shut it down after the war, and it continued. Um, and we used some of these weapons almost for certain in the Korean conflict and in the Vietnam War. Doctor, uh, sorry, President Nixon was getting a lot of pushback over the Vietnam War and was looking for a, uh, a political coup and so in 1969, he said the United States is going to give up its biological weapons. And then he also said a couple of months later they'll get, well, that we will give up our toxin weapons as well. And we will create a treaty to ban this class of weapons from the face of the earth. And sure enough, the United States did that. In 1972, we had a treaty. Almost everybody signed it. In 1975, it went into effect. Ah, everyone thought that was good, but they did it quickly, and they did not make the treaty tight. The idea was that nations would come back together every five years and add provisions that would tighten it up so that 
inspections would be, challenge inspections. So if a country was suspicious of another country, they could say, I challenge you and go into that country and inspect um, without any warning. That was the plan. There would also be punishments added so that if a country was doing what it, what had, what it had agreed not to do, it, there would be some punishment. Well, those two things never got added. And starting in the early 1990s, uh, around the time of the Gulf War, the United States really got in the way and prevented those provisions from being added. At the same time, the Soviet Union was cheating, and probably the U.S. and other nations were cheating as well, because there was no reason to stop it. So there was a leak from an anthrax production facility in the uh, town of Sverdlovsk in the Soviet Union, which was a, a partially closed city, but very few foreigners. And there were about 60 deaths from anthrax there in 1979. Um, we continued to sort of bounce along, sort of pretending to obey the treaty. But then in 2001, Judith Miller, a New York Times reporter who, who had been involved with a search for weapons um, in Iraq, uh, wrote a book called Germs. And in it, she explained that the United States government had been doing experiments with anthrax that most uh, scientists and um, diplomats thought was were transgressing were going against the biological weapons convention but of course there was nothing to stop them um, subsequently the united states got more and more involved in this area and started doing it openly and changed the name from biological warfare research to gain of function research which was probably the name change was probably designed to fool the people who were not in the know so if you and I heard that term, we would have no idea it had anything to do with biological warfare. And these experiments continued, um, and they became more potentially dangerous. And there were accidents at the laboratory. So um, uh, a, a reporter for USA Today, I think her name was Allison Young, wrote a series of reports around 2014, 2015, about leaks at U.S. biolabs with very dangerous biological warfare agents. And many scientists begged the government to shut this program down. So um, again, to, to look like he was being a good leader, um, Obama said in 2014, yes, we are going to shut down gain-of-function research. We're going to put a moratorium on it. And um, we're going to try to figure out if there is a safe way to do it. And we uh, asked the people at the NIH, Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, to figure out how we can continue to perform this research but make it safe. However, after that announcement, there were only two kinds of microorganisms that were included, and those were the avian flu viruses and the SARS coronaviruses. So. You, could, you were allowed to continue gain-of-function of biological warfare research on all other viruses and bacteria if you wished. So from 2014 to 2017, there was a moratorium on this work. And yet, at the same time, Ralph Barrick, uh, working with Xi Jinping in China, was publishing papers that were obviously, you know, <laughs> gain-of-function work. They were explaining that it was gain-of-function work in the in the papers themselves. And Ralph Barrick said, we got a waiver for this kind of research. So they went along the merry way, developing more and more dangerous coronaviruses. Um, in 2017, the moratorium was lifted, and scientists were allowed to go back and continue this kind of research. Um, but they were supposed to run it through a committee at the NIH to make sure it was okay. A lot of it never went through that committee. No coronavirus research ever went through the committee. And this was discovered in Tony Fauci's emails after the pandemic started. So, so as everybody knows, the pandemic began at some point in, in late 2019 in China. Uh, we know now pretty much for certain that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was made in the lab. And what we don't know is whether it leaked accidentally or if it was deliberately 
put into the environment to cause a pandemic. Everyone was very interested in how this organism came to be and what potential treatments there might be. And we actually had some pretty good information because there had been an earlier SARS coronavirus that appeared out of nowhere in China, it seems to have been a natural virus, um, quite similar to this one, and it had a 10% mortality rate. So of the people we identified that had been infected, 10% died. But there were only uh, a total of seven or 8,000 cases around the world. And then the virus died out, unclear why. Well, the Chinese, you know, were obviously very concerned about this virus. There were also a lot of cases in Canada and in Southeast Asian countries. And so they were looking at vaccines and drugs to treat it. And they came up with the chloroquine drugs, which are anti used mostly for anti-malarial use. But they also have um, a modulating effect on the immune system. And so they are used for lupus um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and a few other autoimmune diseases. And in fact, chloroquine is a, is a versatile drug and now it's being looked at as a treatment for all sorts of things, from pregnancy loss to cancer, to weight problems. Um, if you go to uh, clinicaltrials.gov, you'll see you know at least 100 different trials looking at how the chloroquine drugs might be beneficial in different situations. These are very safe drugs if given in the right dose. If given in too high a dose, if you give someone four times the normal dose, it can cause electrolyte shifts that can lead to a cardiac arrhythmia and potentially death, particularly if they're on other drugs that exacerbate that effect. It also can cause, particularly at high doses, uh, psychiatric reactions. Um, it can make you hypoglycemic so that it's actually been looked at as a potential treatment for diabetes. So chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, almost the same drug. When SARS-CoV-2 broke out in China, China immediately began testing people with chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. And when SARS-CoV-2 broke out in the US in January and February of 2020, the Chinese created a brochure in English to explain to us what needed to be done to ameliorate the, the symptoms and, and the com consequences of this illness. You know, how to, how to use PPE in your healthcare workers, you know, how to treat people, how, all sorts of things. And that was very useful information. But unfortunately, Trump heard it. And by about March 20th of 2020, when uh, COVID was really just uh, getting started in New York City, Trump said, we might have a miracle drug. It's chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. Could be a gift from God, you know. Let's try it. It's worth trying. We don't have anything else. And almost immediately, within 10 days, state governments and federal agencies started to clamp down on chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and azithromycin to make it almost impossible to obtain those drugs in the US. And they did this a variety of ways because the FDA licenses drugs and crafts a label for those drugs, but can't tell doctors how to use the drugs. Um, and a doctor can use any drug for any purpose, that's called off-label use, and that is perfectly legal. And somewhere between 20 and 50% of drug prescriptions are actually used for off-label purposes, which means that purpose was not specifically tested and is not listed on the drug's label. So I began using uh, hydroxychloroquine and sometimes azithromycin for uh, treatment of COVID. Now, my state issued regulations because the states regulate pharmacies and medical care. The states were urged, presumably by the federal government, to issue guidelines to reduce the use. So in my state, I was allowed to use chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine for patients, but I was not allowed to give it prophylactically, preventively, even though it works very well that way. 
because it has a very long half-life. So you only, just like you give it for malaria, you give it once a week, usually for malaria, and it prevents malaria. And you could have given it once a week for COVID and it would have probably worked. And in some places like India, they were doing that. But my governor said, no, you can't uh, prescribe it for your family. You can't give it to people preventively. And you can give it to a patient with COVID, but you can't give them more than a two-week supply. In other words, you don't, you can't give them enough so that they could share it with somebody else. Um, pharmacies also were told to be nervous and to start screening prescriptions uh, in my state so that if the, and they were told a few weeks later to start asking the reason for the prescription. And if it was for COVID, not to dispense it. Now that is, that is basically illegal. The pharmacist does not have legally the right to decide when a doctor gives that person a valid legal prescription to decide not to fill it. I mean, they, they have the right if they think it's going to kill the patient or harm them, especially if they know about what other drugs the patient is taking. But if you have a healthy patient, they're not on any other drugs. There's no reason to think hydroxychloroquine is going to kill them when you're giving the same dose that you would give to someone with lupus or um, another autoimmune disease. Um, the pharmacist has no business restricting the prescriptions, but it, but the pharmacists, almost all of them, did so because they had been warned their license was at risk. They could be investigated by the state pharmacy board if they did so. So that drug became very difficult to obtain, and the price went up dramatically. So from being a very cheap generic drug, it started costing, you know, hundreds of dollars for a prescription. Now, even though almost nobody knew about ivermectin as a treatment for COVID, turns out that the, C that the FDA knew about it. There was a manufacturer in France that was conducting clinical trials in Australia of a long-acting injected form of ivermectin for COVID and published a press release on it in early April of 2020. And uh, so the FDA and federal agencies were aware that this drug was in the, in the offing. In other words, ivermectin was already licensed both for human and animals. Um, and now it could be given in another form, an injectable form instead of a pill, which would require um, an approval by the FDA. But it could be a very um, cursory approval because the drug, the active ingredient, had already been approved. So um, warnings started to be issued very quietly about ivermectin, but because very few people knew about it, um, it wasn't a problem until uh, Pierre Corey mentioned it in a Senate hearing at the very end of 2020. When the Republicans were um, in control of the Senate in 2020 and Trump was president, Republicans could hold hearings. So Ron Johnson held two hearings in November and December on the treatment of COVID. The first hearing, the Democrats didn't have any witnesses except um, Ashish Jha, who um, badmouthed all the treatments. And when he was asked how many COVID patients he had treated, he admitted he'd never treated any. At the second hearing, the Democrats refused to put anybody in as a witness. And on block, they all marched out of the hearing and wouldn't, you know, close their ears, would not even listen to what the witnesses or the other members of the Senate had to say about drugs that were potentially life-saving for COVID. So that's what happened in 2020. In 2021 now, the, the Dems gained control of the Senate and the House. Um, Biden was elected president. And there were no more hearings about these drugs. And um, efforts were then made to stop the um, use of ivermectin by the CDC, which sent out a big warning about it to pharmacists and doctors around the country. And, uh, and again, pharmacists who had been prescribing or had been dispensing it stopped dispensing it, and doctors who had been prescribing it stopped prescribing it. Because at that point, everyone knew there would be doctors investigated and pharmacies investigated, and they might lose their careers. Um, in fact, there were several doctors in, by the middle of 2021 
who were on the national news for having prescribed ivermectin to patients for COVID. And uh, senators, including Elizabeth Warren, um, were really rolling witnesses over the coals, doctors who had prescribed ivermectin in nursing homes or in prisons, who had done people who, who you know, were in a grave situation, who weren't able to get their own medications. And fortunately, there were doctors willing to treat prisoners and elderly in old age homes with a safe and effective medicine. No, nobody's been poisoned. There's no allegation that anyone has been poisoned by prescription ivermectin in the United States. There's a few people who overdosed when they bought an animal product or bought it on the internet. None, nobody's died from an ivermectin overdose. Um, so this brouhaha about the dangers of the drug when it's really a very safe drug and, and you can give it 10 times the dose and it doesn't kill anybody, unlike hydroxychloroquine. Um, so the CDC and the feds decided they had to do more and they really started cranking things up about ivermectin. Uh, when there was a week where there were over 80,000 prescriptions dispensed. And so then, you know, there was a lot of TV advertising and people were told to start uh, snitching on your neighbor. If your neighbor is using these drugs or has these drugs or the doctors are giving it out or the pharmacies, tell us. We need to know. We need to save people. Of course, they weren't saving anyone. Now, why did this happen? It seems crazy. How could it be? Well, the PREP Act is a, is a law that enables the government and manufacturers to roll out untested drugs and vaccines in a medical emergency um, as long as there are no other licensed drugs that are effective for, for that emergency. So had the federal agencies acknowledged that chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, zinc, ivermectin, or anything else effectively treated COVID, you know, the, all of those drugs were licensed, the PREP Act could not have been used to roll out untested vaccines, untested drugs. And it also, and the most important thing the PREP Act did was to give virtually total immunity from liability to all the COVID vaccines and to many COVID drugs. So remdesivir got that liability waiver until it got licensed and then it went under another category. Uh, Malnupiravir and Paxlovid also got this complete waiver of liability. That meant that even if the drug killed you, you could not sue the manufacturer and you could not sue anyone in the government who had decided on the program. You couldn't sue the people who gave it to you. You couldn't sue the doctor for malpractice. You couldn't sue the building owner where, they, where, the, where you'd been injected, nothing. And the government and the manufacturers really liked and really wanted that PrEP Act immunity. So they did everything they could to kill off the drugs that were um, would have worked and would have ended the pandemic a lot sooner. It sounds crazy, um, but if you read the articles I've written about this, if you, I have, you know, probably a hundred links. And if you look up the details, you'll find that everything I've said is absolutely correct. And this is what was done, you know, even though it was clearly unethical, immoral, and a, uh, a crime against humanity. Now, why did they want to roll out the vaccines so badly? I can't tell you that. I can only speculate. For some reason, the military uh, or whoever was calling the shots, we know the military was in charge of manufacturing them. Um, decided the MRA, our mRNA platform was what they wanted, and they wanted to bring it forward. And by having an emergency, they could bring it forward a lot faster. As you know, uh, industry is now trying to make flu shots, RSV shots, and other vaccines um, based on the messenger RNA platform. The RNA platform has in a lot of intrinsic dangers. And, and one of them is something that should have prevented it ever being used. And that is that when you in, 
the, a vaccine in a lipid nanoparticle into someone, messenger RNA vaccine, your body is the manufacturing plant that makes the, the spike protein that your body then creates an immune response to. That your body makes an immune response to. The problem is that um, all medications, whether they're drugs or vaccines or other biologics, have to be licensed for one specific dose. As Paracelsus told us hundreds of years ago, the dose makes the poison. Too much of a good thing will poison you. Not enough won't work. You need the right dose. With the messenger RNA vaccines, you don't know how much your body is going to make and you don't know for how long it's going to make it. There are people now um, who have been tested and it looks like they're still making the spike protein um, and possibly the messenger RNA as well for six months. So that's way more than what you need. And at that point, it's poisoning you. Also, initially, you don't know how many cells are going to take up the messenger RNA and start making the spike protein. And you don't know which cells they are, and you don't know which cells are going to be destroyed. Th this may be the cause of the myocarditis, the fact that some cardiac cells have taken it up and have now been destroyed by the body's immune system. So the platform alone, even before you get to what might be wrong with the RNA, is a problem. And yet we're, we're moving forward with other messenger RNA vaccines. We have to ask why that is. We have to ask why it was the military rather than the FDA, CDC, or NIH that was actually in charge of manufacturing the vaccines. And why normal standards, um, because FDA does have standards for issuing um, authorizations and uh, unlicensed products in, under special circumstances, and yet FDA standards were not adhered to. They were not followed for the COVID products. The Army um, that was managing the manufacturing had no standards. The Army is not a, a pharmaceutical manufacturing facility. All they had was a law called Other Transaction Authority, which allowed them to buy products um, and such as the ingredients for vaccines or drugs, and then put them together with a, and not if you didn't call them a pharmaceutical product, they did not have to go through FDA's regulatory processes. And that's what's hap what happened. So basically a scam got pulled on the entire American people regarding whether or not the FDA had regulated, approved, or authorized these vaccines and these other products. All right, uh, let me move on to what's happening now. Having gotten away with this scam, um, in the United States and most developed countries and many underdeveloped countries, there is a new plan afoot where the World Health Organization, working together with the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, and the UN, has pushed out documents that it wants to have signed, uh, sealed, and delivered in final form next May. One is a, called a pandemic treaty. The WHO has never had a pandemic treaty. They never needed one. Countries took care of their own health problems by themselves. But uh, now, apparently, we need one. And instead of the WHO being an organization that gives recommendations to countries, this new pandemic treaty will give orders to countries. It will tell them what it must do, what they may not do, what drugs they are allowed to use, what drugs they're not allowed to use. It requires them to perform surveillance of social media and censor any um, narratives that conflict with whatever public health narrative the WHO decides to push forward. Um, it could potentially take away inter, uh, intellectual property rights from companies and, and uh, states. It could require one nation to provide products to another nation. Um, and uh, certainly it could require vaccinations and vaccine passports. It also 
explicitly in the in the most modern draft which came out in june and was put together by staff at the who it's called the bureau draft um could tell uh nations they need vaccine passports and they can't travel they could close borders they could do other things um if you have not been vaccinated or drugged correctly or you test positive on a pcr test so the world health organization could essentially be taking over running the world during a public health emergency um by enforcing masks quarantines lockdowns and and potentially other things because it has claimed the world health organization has claimed that climate change is a health threat and that that is within its purview and that the health of animals and plants and ecosystems also relate to health and so they too are within its purview finally this newest draft of the treaty says that it isn't just invoked when there is an emergency so you don't need a declaration of a public health emergency of international concern the treaty will actually be in force all the time before after during pandemics there's also another document which has been in place since 1969 called the international health regulations and uh it was initially uh, set up to deal with infectious diseases that might cross borders such as smallpox uh cholera typhoid over the years that document expanded um but it continued to essentially just give countries recommendations what has been proposed and this was initiated originally in 2021 by the united states is that these recommendations no longer be recommendations but be binding orders and um there are a number of other um objectionable provisions to the new newest version of the international health regulation so it's being amended countries offered about 300 amendments and uh various committees of the WHO are going through them trying to harmonize them you know make those that are similar into one get rid of those that most nations don't want but what this um the international health regulations have done so far in their multiple versions is to say basically we are not bound by human rights uh laws during public health emergencies so where the language uh dignity freedom of persons and human rights was explicitly in the earlier version of the international health regulations that has been removed from the later versions um there will be a lot of money involved so the international organizations including nation states like the US have created a financial intermediate intermediary fund through the world bank which will collect money to help all the nations of the world build out their ability to do genomic sequencing to um develop pcr tests and to become part of what is termed the global biosecurity agenda. The idea is that everybody in the world is supposed to be worried about pandemics and biological warfare all the time. All the nations are supposed to be performing surveillance activities like swabbing humans and animals all the time, looking for potential pandemic pathogens, something that might turn into a pandemic pathogen later down the road. there's to sequence these organisms mostly viruses and share them with the WHO and potentially with other nations now up until very recently that was called proliferation of biological weapons if you have an organism that that is very virulent and very transmissible instead of sharing it you want to suppress it you want to get rid of it you want to end that line of research you want to inspect laboratories that have those pathogens and make sure that they are very well controlled so they don't escape instead in these documents the WHO is actually incentivizing nations 
um, to do this type of work. And specifically, um, in the treaty, the WHO says that laboratories should uh, that perform research to increase the transmissibility or the pathogenicity, that means the, the dangerousness of uh, viruses and microorganisms, should have um, unreasonable uh, rules that stand in the way that they should be got rid of. So um, that's what I call incentivizing gain-of-function or biological warfare research, when the WHO instructs nations that they need to get rid of the impediments to performing this sort of research. And they insist that nations share these pathogens. Um, one of the things that can happen if all the nations are sharing these pathogens is that when you get the next, if there is a next um, COVID, for instance, you can't point your finger at China or at Ralph Barrick in North Carolina because everybody else has it too. So you don't know where it came from and you can't blame anybody for it. What we need to prevent biological warfare is to stop this kind of research, to inspect all the labs that have been doing it, to find out what governments have produced and, and what they've saved of the natural pathogens we all have to share that information and destroy it all and make it a major crime to do work on this type of thing again. You know, whether the viruses that caused COVID fell out of a lab accidentally or whether they were deliberately spread, yes, it matters. But to the people of the world who have died and, and become ill as a result, what we want is for that never to happen again. We don't want our tax dollars to be spent creating these organisms. We don't want to be, you know, at risk of another pathogen. And we don't want our nations turning into biological warfare, global bio agenda um, nations where everybody has to be afraid of everybody else because we might spread something. Um, that is not a way to live. That is not a way for our, for our civilization to move forward and so i really call on everybody take a look at these documents i've formed an organization that is called door to freedom.org door to freedom.org we have copies of the treaty the international health regulations the various versions of them we have very brief two-minute articles about them we have longer articles about them we have other writers um, analyses and critiques of these documents and what's going on and we're trying to inform everybody about this uh, terrible biosecurity agenda it's also called global pandemic preparedness the biden budget has already allocated 20 billion dollars a year in the united states for international pandemic preparedness we have to uh, you know, make our voices heard. There are 49 members of the of the House of Congress that have said, let's get out of the WHO, let's stop funding the WHO, this is terrible. The WHO wants to basically take over sovereignty under the guise of a public health emergency, and we don't want it. Um, there are about 47 members of the Senate, all Republicans, and the, and the House members are Republicans too, who have also said, we don't want these treaties, these new versions of the health regulations and the new pandemic treaty going forward unless they have come through the Senate, we have investigated them, held hearings on them, and then it requires a two-third vote of the Senate to uh, for the United States to join the pandemic treaty. Um, we are hoping that uh, that is what's going to happen. It will be that this treaty, because most treaties actually don't go through the Senate, Surprisingly, 80 to 90% of treaties that the U.S. is a party to have never gone through the Senate. They, they've only required a sign-off by the administration, by some person in the State Department, and that was the plan. That was the WHO U.S. plan for, this, for the amendments and the treaty. That they, in fact, they keep changing the name of it. The, they don't call it a treaty anymore. They've called it a convention, an accord, an instrument, or an other as a means of trying to um, 
tell nations that they don't need to put it through their parliaments. It's just it's just a little agreement. Just sign here and everything will be good. So we have to stop that. Um, please contact your members of Congress. Let them know this is not something anybody wants. We don't want another COVID. We need to get rid of these um, dangerous organisms. We need to get rid of the whole idea of uh, pandemic preparedness, which has basically funded the development of these um, dangerous microorganisms like uh, SARS-CoV-2. And I thank you, Gary. Any other questions? So there's so much more to the treaty and especially its binding principles that will adversely impact every nation's sovereignty, including the United States. In other words, what I gleam from what Merrill Nass was saying is that nations will not be able to rely upon their own internal medical expertise and must confer to whatever rules and measures the World Health Organization dictates. And of course, it is well known that the World Health Organization is largely controlled by funds it receives from Bill Gates Foundation, the Chinese government, and the United States, and Gavi, uh, which is controlled and created by Bill Gates. And so her summary about the treaty and list of those policies and rules in the treaty are very much concerning all of us. And we should be very thankful for that. And by the way, the World Health Organization treaty uh, is to so-called protect ongoing gain-of-function research. That's what it's all about. And who's behind that? Who's behind the bioweapons? China and uh, Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci. And so it protects them and gives them a monopoly. Now, now that the COVID pandemic has ushered in a new generation of vaccine technology you mentioned earlier, namely the gene therapy-based RNA, the modified RNA vaccines, likely DNA vaccines in the pipeline, we will witness a proliferation of these new generation vaccines being rolled out. They're not about to roll out and spend all that money on a vaccine development if they didn't have the absolute confidence that the FDA, U.S. Public Health Service, and other agencies couldn't enforce that we have to have them. Even to replace many of the current traditional vaccines that are based upon culturing viruses. So how does the treaty further open the way for new vaccines for future pandemics to be rolled out, even artificial pandemics? And what are some of the loopholes we should be worried about regarding bypassing proper vaccine clinical trial testing, which we didn't do at all with COVID to determine their safety and efficacy, especially when the average person doesn't have a background in genetics or science. So they're just letting their eyes roll back in their head and say, well, whatever. And then finally, what, what do we know about the COVID modified RNA vaccines that we weren't told at the beginning, but they knew at the beginning. Documents have come out now under Freedom of Information Act and, and uh, the judge's rulings. Hundreds of thousands of documents showed unequivocally, absolutely, incontrovertibly, that they knew they were dangerous. They knew it would cause an increase in uh, miscarriages. And they knew it would cause an increase in heart disease and damage to the heart, which is neither transient nor minimal. When you get a scarring of the heart, the heart is one of the few organs the body cannot rejuvenate its cells. As a result, it creates a scab, a scar, and that ultimately, within a 10-year period, increases your likelihood of dying by almost 75%. So they've tried to downplay everything. I've yet to see a single article in a major magazine, certainly not um, not uh, The Nation, not in any of the big magazines, Time Magazine, for example, or Sunday New York Times Magazine section, 60 Minutes, with all the people been damaged, proven damaged. But let's make it simple. All the medical doctors, nurses who took the vaccine, pro-vaccine, didn't question anything, and now they're dead or they're permanently injured or seriously injured and not one of their voices has been heard nor sought. So they knew it was dangerous. The most da This is more dangerous than all the other vaccines in American history combined by multiple factors. The most c current figures I have that are 
as accurate as they could be because the VARA system, the Vaccine Adverse Reporting System, was voluntary, is about 300,000 plus dead. Okay, or as many people that died in the First World War. There's about a million two hundred thousand permanently injured and up to seven million uh, with side effects, serious side effects, and then all those autoimmune conditions. And that's without taking into account that this, you mentioned that the, the vaccine can cause the cells to produce the spike protein, which itself is toxic, but there's no off switch. You know, we were told, oh, it only lasts about, about a week. No, we have people six to nine months later still producing that. So the worst is still to come. And also, people might have had one vaccine, and it might have been a placebo. We also found that out from Denmark. And uh, the German scientists picked up on it, and now we know of how serious that is, that about 30% of uh, the vaccines were placebos. But then they relied upon the placebo group to say that, oh, look, here's all these people and no side effects. Yeah, those were the placebo Vaccines. You're not going to have a side effect with a placebo, but they didn't talk about the actual vaccine. So we've been played from day one, unfortunately. So quickly, if you can, summarize these before we go to our last question. Sure, um, I'll try. Uh, so the earliest data was from the clinical trials, and they did not last very long. So Pfizer started to vaccinate its control group um, after a median of two months being in the trial. So in other words, 90, we know that 98% of the people in the control group took the Pfizer vaccine. So after two months, there were no longer two groups that could be compared in terms of side effects. We also know that most people um, in, the, in that 40,000 person trial um, were young and healthy. There were very few that were elderly and there were very few teenagers because Pfizer got that vaccine authorized for age 16 up and up, um, 16, 17 being minors, but there were only a few hundred people of that age, if that many. So when Pfizer produced the information about how many cases of COVID there was and how much protection there was and all that, you know, we were told it was over 90% effective. Um, it turned out that both in the placebo group and in the vaccine group had a lower rate of COVID than the rate in any state or territory in the entire United States. So Pfizer was missing cases and um, they were probably deliberately missing cases. We also know that um, this, there's Pfizer themselves ran the central the laboratory so in the in the documentation about the trial it talks about how um, pcr tests and other tests will go to a central laboratory to you know to determine the result well pfizer was running that laboratory so pfizer could decide what the results were in other words it was very easy for pfizer to say we had a 90 percent uh you know effective vaccine when it was doing all the numbers now, after that, we know after the trials were over, uh, and by the way, Pfizer did not put all its subjects into a safety study. It only took about a third of them. It took a subset of all the people it vaccinated and said, these are the ones we're going to follow for safety, and FDA allowed them to do that. Or maybe it wasn't FDA at all. Maybe it was just the military, and maybe the entire thing was just a kabuki dance, a, a play, you know, all for show. But it's, it's unclear at this point how much role, if any, the FDA had in terms of specifying, you know, how the trials would be run, how the labels would be written, and how the vaccines would be rolled out. We know that Peter Marks, who Peter Marks is the head of vaccines at FDA, and he is no friend of safety evaluation. And yet um, what was going on at Operation Warp Speed was too much for him, and he quit it, and he went back to his old role at the FDA. Janet Woodcock was the liaison between Operation Warp Speed and the FDA. And it seems that the, the normal FDA regulators didn't have a lot to do with the vaccines. Well, now we know perhaps why that occurred. It turns out uh, 
Kevin McKernan, a scientist, had a look at the vaccines and found there was a tremendous amount of DNA in them as well as RNA. The, venue, the RNA vaccines are manufactured in bulk using something called a DNA plasmid made from E. coli. And these should be filtered out and gotten rid of before the vaccine is injected into us. But apparently because there was such a hurry and because there was no liability for the manufacturers, it was not filtered properly and a considerable amount of the material in the vaccines is DNA. The problem is that this could much more easily, if it enters the nucleus of our cells, become attached to our own DNA. And if that happens in, in um, egg cells, sperm cells, um, or certain other cells, the damage could go on for generations. Um, that the amounts of DNA are many times orders of magnitude greater than what the FDA allows according to its own standards. So that's the problem. There are already DNA vaccines on the market in the United States. The AstraZeneca and J&J COVID vaccines are DNA vaccines made out of an adenovirus that contains double-stranded DNA. And the Ebola vaccine that was licensed in the U.S. in 2019 is another DNA vaccine. So people probably are not aware of this, but DNA vaccines are being brought in also and RNA. And what the long-term effects are and whether they will, in fact, um, join up with our own DNA and cause possibly very considerable mutations in our, in our own genome, um, is an issue and should concern everyone. I appreciate your input. Thank you very much. We're out of time, unfortunately. My guest, Dr. Merrill Nass, giving us insights that I bet most people were unaware of, telling you the truth, something we're not getting elsewhere. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Progressive Radio Network. Pass it forward. Share it with other people. Have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the answer. 